Welcome back to Pediatric Chat. My name is Jay Greenspan. I'm, I'm co-hosting with my good friend, Paul Rosen. Hi, Paul. Hello, Jay. Today, we're really excited to have uh, Dr. Rosie Varkey here because she's a pediatric dermatologist and they're really hard to find. Rosie is an awesome person. She was a pediatrician first and then went on to get dermatology training. Threw a little pharmacology in there in the middle, but we won't talk too much about that. But a dermatologist who specializes in pediatrics is rare. It's really hard to get in to see one of those people. So we're going to take the opportunity to ask Rosie lots of questions, see if we can get some of these solved by our esteemed panel now, who are going to introduce themselves, starting with Rachel. My name is Rachel, and I have a nine-month-old daughter. Hi, my name is Tiffany, and I'm a mom of three. I have a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old. I am Laura, and I am the mother of a two-year-old daughter. Laura, you want to kick us off with a question? Sure. So um, my two-year-old daughter has been treated for severe eczema since she was probably about 10 months old is when we started seeing signs. And we're being treated by the allergist as well as our general pediatrician. And I'm just curious from your vantage point, what is the long-term effects that you found with kids with eczema? Is this something they outgrow? Is this something that perhaps it goes into adulthood? And are there any other complications that you see are associated with it? That's a great question. Eczema is a very common reason for kids to come to our office. It tends to run in families with seasonal allergies, eczema, dry sensitive skin, hay fever, all these things can kind of run together. So eczema tends to show itself as dry, itchy, pink skin. In infants, it can be more widespread. It can cover really a lot of surfaces of the body. As kids get older, it can really focus more to the crease areas. So if you have a two-year-old, you're probably right in the middle of that transition from sort of this all over look to more concentrated on arms, legs, crease areas. I think you had mentioned when we were speaking a little bit earlier that your daughter's got some allergies to some outdoor stuff, trees, things that we're around (laughs) all the time. That is hard because obviously we don't live in bubbles. We like to go outside. We like to play. We like to wear shorts and short sleeves. And so that can be an obstacle that's tough to manage. But in the long term, many kids will outgrow eczema. I mean, probably upward of 80 or 90 percent of children will outgrow eczema. The nice thing is even um, kids that I've seen in my office with multiple food allergies and environmental allergies, as teenagers, sometimes you can't even see where the eczema was. So even people with really, really significant eczema in infancy and early childhood don't really have significant long-term effects on their skin from eczema. So that's really nice to know. It's really good to know. It's really so that, No, it's not going to get worse, and there's not really long-term side effects with that. No, no. I think that the major goal of treatment for eczema is to keep children more comfortable for that very reason. So we're really looking to, you know, improve itching, improve sleep. You know, a lot of times sleep can be disturbed with eczema. Kids are scratching their heart. It's hard for them to fall asleep. And then, of course, we want to try to keep that skin barrier intact so that there aren't breaks in the skin that could be prone to infection. Are there long-term side effects using the topical steroids? Because we have a myriad of different steroids depending on where it is, how severe it is. I mean, we kind of judge that. We use it very sparingly. We try to because I don't, you know, it's a steroid, so I don't want to overuse it. Do you find any long-term effects with that? Well, there have been recent studies looking into effects of long-term use of topical steroids on skin. When they're used appropriately, they can be used very safely. Even if a child has eczema for years, um, topical steroid medicines can be used in a very safe way, as long as you're sort of following those guidelines that are given to you. 
There was a study done where parents were given their topical steroid medicines that were prescribed by their physicians and said, go use this the way you normally do and come back and see us at regular intervals. If you are in the practice of using it for a week or two at a time and taking a break, great. If not, we're just going to have you use it the way that you use it. And they were the children were followed at a few months up to a year out, and none of them were found to have the side effect that we sort of fear the most, which is skin thinning. So that's really reassuring. <laughs> that being said, we, you know, we, we try to give guidelines so that the medicines are used appropriately. And that usually means using the medicines until the eczema is calm and then stopping and taking a break until the next flare comes. And hopefully, you know, you've gotten a topical steroid that is of appropriate strength so that you can follow those guidelines and use the medicines on and off. And that's the appropriate way to use them. That's good news. It's really good news. I I feel like a lot of people, I have a few of my girlfriends have their children that have eczema. I don't know about you guys, if your kids have any eczema. I was thinking about something. One of my children, my kids are really diligent about washing their hands. I'm sort of on top of them. But I think the downfall of that is they're starting to get bumps sometimes on their hands. Is that typical when you're... So... When you clean hands, are you in the practice of typically using like hand soap, Mm -hmm. hand sanitizer, perhaps? The one that has the bumps uses everything under the sun and loves nice smelly things. So it's tough if you do have maybe a tendency towards sensitive skin in your family and you're washing your hands maybe 10 or 12 times a day or perhaps you're just washing them three times in one (laughs) setting. (laughs) Um, Yeah, sure. You know, so those soap ingredients and sometimes the fragrances that are mixed with those, the things that make soap foamy and frothy and lathery, they can really strip the natural oils from our skin and create dry skin. So without meaning to, we're actually causing a problem. First of all, having your hands in water, which enhances the penetration of these, you know, agents. And then on top of that, you know, kind of using them excessively or very, very frequently. So it probably is related to the frequency of use of hand washing and hand sanitizer. This is another very common reason for kids to come to our office. And typically in the winter months when the weather is not helping us out here in this region of the country, it's cold, it's dry, you got a forced air heat just going and going and going. So I try when kids come to my office and they're telling me their hands hurt or they itch to talk about, look, when you get germs on your hands, you're getting them really on the palm side of your hands, not on the back of your hands. So when you wash your hands, try to put soap only on the tips of your fingers and not to actually put the soap on all over the backs of your hands where the skin is much more sensitive. It's thinner. It's easier to crack and bleed. I would say it's probably unlikely that the problem that your child is experiencing is on the palm side of the hands. Maybe it's all over. No, it's like, I, I can say that it's right on the lathered back. Yeah. And just covered <laughs> and we don't believe in one palm that has to be five. Oh, yes. You know, yeah, it's a... Yeah, we go through a lot of soap in my house. And And it's good and bad. That's good. You know, you want hygiene. You don't want to get sick. So sometimes replacing that soap, that smelly, nice hand soap with a gentler cleanser, you know, something that doesn't have a lot of lathery, soapy ingredient, you know, reserving the use of those antibacterial soaps for when you really need it. Okay. I try to stick to like soft soap and just straight soft soap or Dove. Okay. I try to stick to something milder for my kids because we do, they do have sensitive skin, all three. Okay. So, so the bar that okay? of soap that says sen- that says sensitive skin on it is mm-hmm. is probably one of the mildest, you know, bars. Okay. There are cleansers that are probably a step 
milder than even that. You know, Dove is moisturizer mixed with soap ingredient. So if you chose a liquid cleanser or a, a bar soap that, for example, um, these liquid soaps that are made by Eucerin or Cetaphil or Aveeno's baby hmm. washes that say fragrance-free, they're a little bit milder than, you know, the, the soapy ingredient. So they're not going to strip as much of the moisture from your skin. And then, of course, you could try to get in the habit of using a hand moisturizer or some sort of nice, thick fragrance-free moisturizer every time you wash your hands. I don't know how good any of us are at doing that. Mm-hmm, yeah. But it's good to aspire to at least maybe morning and nighttime to try to you know repair that skin barrier. So these are some things that could be tried. And then sometimes hand sanitizer just does more harm than good, especially once you've already gotten to that place where the skin is already compromised. And sometimes at school, these products are used maybe a little differently than we might use them at home. So um, trying to limit that use and maybe perhaps having a child have the option to wash their hands at the sink with your soap rather than use hand sanitizer, sometimes that's helpful. Okay. So I hope that helps a little bit. No, it it does. (laughs) So try to find soaps for our kids to use that are fragrance-free and have the littlest bit of stuff in them possible. If they have, you know, these sensitive skin Mm -hmm. types of tendencies, then to look for things that maybe don't lather as much and and don't have as many fragrance ingredients. It's kind of tough because reading labels in this Mm -hmm. day and age, you go to the the drugstore and look, and I feel so bad for parents that I send out there to buy things because Mm -hmm. it's really confusing. There are so many products out there. Labeling can be really confusing to kind of sort through. Typically, things that say fragrance-free are are not going to have fragrance in their ingredients. That's a little bit of a difference from unscented. So Mm -hmm. if you see something that says unscented and you turn it around and look at the little fine print ingredients, you might see some fragrance mixed in there. That's called masking fragrance. So that can be put into products that say unscented. So be careful if your kids are really sensitive and if they have eczema. Reading labels can be helpful to try to avoid things like that. I would say that the highly fragranced, you know, types of products are probably the worst for kids with eczema. Like, so the teenagers that come in that have eczema and they want to use their Bath and Body Works, we're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> but yeah. it's expensive, sorry. too, going through all this stuff with a child with sensitive skin. You spend a fortune trying different creams, different lotions, and finding, you know, the best one. That's, that's a struggle, too. I think with that obstacle and with eczema, coming back to eczema a little bit, it's really okay with eczema to use water alone to wash those eczema areas and to moisturize them regularly. And many times if we have somebody who's having trouble we'll say hey just use water alone to rinse those areas we do vaseline twice a day her entire body is the petroleum jelly Mm. the good stuff yeah that's it (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) no baby powder scent no cocoa butter just the plain old good stuff that is very very good how do you feel about because i know sometimes like i'll use because i try to buy things and use things that have as little again ingredients as possible i like to recognize all of the ingredients what about just simple like coconut oil I cook with coconut oil. I rubbed it on my hands. One of my questions here was um, about cradle cap because my daughter had cradle cap and I used coconut oil to help treat her cradle cap. What are your opinions or thoughts on just using you know, something as simple as that to, to help battle some skin issues? Single ingredient moisturizers are probably the most well tolerated. Um, there is a little bit of scientific data with coconut oil showing some anti-inflammatory effect. There's not a lot of science looking into natural moisturizers and things like that, but coconut oil is, has some information behind it, Okay. as well as safflower seed oil and sunflower seed oil, which I think are probably harder to find. I'm not really sure where you find those. Raw shea butter, people will come and love to use raw cocoa butter. When you're looking for single ingredient products, I think that those are definitely going to be preferred. 
With cocoa butter and shea butter, many times you'll see that as an ingredient in a product that has a mixture of ingredients in it. I think that raw shea butter and raw cocoa butter must not smell that great because a lot of those products have some masking fragrance mixed in mm-hmm. with them. But I like. I think the they're harder oil. to Maybe to rub, rub in. in. Yeah, because I've had the raw shea butter before. Have where you? Again, we bought it like an Amish farmers market, so they're making it, you know, right there. But it was difficult to rub in and very um, greasy. But I mean, it was great putting on your hands or you know, trouble spots before you go to bed at night because was very nourishing, but I could see where it wouldn't be as comfortable to lather on during the day because it's kind of like thick and oily and yeah, mm-hmm. a little harder to rub in. But. Okay. Yeah. But coconut oil smooths on very quickly. Yeah. It's a little greasy at first, but then it, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it settles in, it settles in a little bit. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Of course. You know, as our, as our kids get older, just in general, I mean, there's some kids are more prone to acne and, and whatnot. And I'm kind of curious and I've always wondered about this. Is it more from a hormonal standpoint that a lot of times that can happen or dietary or a combination? Hmm. So we know that it is the testosterone and testosterone-like hormones in the body that drive acne. What those hormones do is they make the oil glands larger. And when the oil glands are larger, your pores get clogged more easily. So really every pimple represents a clogged pore. So in terms of diet and acne, there have been many, many studies. How many parents have come in to ask me, is it the pizza? Is it the chips? Can you please (laughs) tell them it's the pizza and the chips because that's all they eat? What the science tells us is that there is an association with really severe nodulocystic acne and a high glycemic diet. Mm-hmm. So really high in, sh- high sh- high in sugar foods and drinks mm-hmm. are associated with some much more severe nodulocystic acne. I'm not sure that that would be a cause for like very mild acne. That's just really tiny, tiny bumps. There has been a question about whether drinking many, many glasses of whole milk a day could um, be associated with uh, more acne. I don't, the jury's still a little bit out on that. Um, not associated with skim milk or cheese or yogurt or things like that. So I don't really know if that really pans out. But I would say that diet and acne, I'm not, I think the jury's still a little bit out, but maybe this high glycemic diet with lots of sugar could be um, a worsening factor with acne. So it is the hormones. Yeah. Mm. And diet can certainly have Absolutely. an effect on your hormones. So maybe. Or even yeah. gluten. Is, this glu- is there any? Well, that's um, what you said. High glycemic yeah. index foods so have shown it's maybe a, a correlation with from the cystic. gluten. There are some nice internet resources for calculating glycemic index. So like bananas have a very high glycemic index. You know, whole wheat, you know, products have a lower glycemic index. I don't know enough about gluten to talk about the glycemic index of gluten-containing foods. (laughs) Well, if if it's, you know, hormone-driven, what do you recommend to treat the acne? I mean, what do you recommend? So you're really putting me on the spot here. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, obviously I don't have control over hormones. This is one of the things that we talk about in the office when kids come to see us. Um, I don't have a way to reach in and turn those hormones off. We don't want to turn those hormones off. No. They're making all these good changes in our bodies. Right. But along with that, there can be some you know, not so desired effects. So really the medicines that we have that are most commonly used in acne are medicines that are geared towards use on the surface of the skin to unclog those pores. There are many, many, many different types of acne products out there. Most of them can have a side effect of making your skin a little bit dry or irritated. So again, Again, kind of coming back to that concept of trying to go with things that are plain, not heavily scented. So probably the first thing to start with would be something very mild, like a acne wash. Trying to stick with those that are not like grapefruit and I don't want to put anyone on the spot. 
apricot, you know, whatever, yeah. all these like, nice scented <laughs> things that we know exist out there. Um, maybe sticking with something geared towards sensitive skin and probably the very initial first starting out ingredient that would be nice to use in an acne wash would be salicylic acid. And it sounds like an acid. It sounds so crazy, but it's it's really a, a very um, mild pore unclogger. It's a very good place to start for mild beginning acne. And the nice thing about the wash is that you're putting it on and you're rinsing it off, so it's not going on the skin and staying on the skin and creating more dry irritation. So it's a really really good starting product. If that's not doing enough, then you kind of graduate up to a, a wash containing benzoyl peroxide, and that's actually a better pore unclogger than salicylic acid, but still as a wash is a little milder. Um, so these are really the beginning starting off treatments. And then there are, you know, obviously other treatments that can be used that are more in the prescription realm of things. But that's usually where we start. Now, what about baby acne? Why do babies have acne? And yeah, what I'll can you do right to treat it? Do you treat it? So are we talking about newborns here or because there are I, I probably you're probably talking mostly about newborns yeah more like infants mm-hmm. um but please anything that you have you know babies i don't know under the age of one or i would say in terms of the most common type of baby acne is really in that first few months of life and that's maybe that's related to maternal hormones that are still present in the baby and that's the type of acne that tends to resolve on its own doesn't really need a, need a lot of treatment so like kind of like avoiding use of any kind of cleanser on the face babies don't need soap on their face they just need water to rinse and um, like avoiding things like baby lotion and things like that on the face um, a lot of those things tend to go away on their own and don't need a lot of extra treatments again I think newborn skin is very sensitive so using really water to clean most of it and if you need some sort of moisturizer if you want to put something on something just use something very bland and coconut oil or (laughs) just like a fragrance-free Vaseline or some people like Aquaphor any of those would be perfectly fine but you don't really have to do anything it'll go away on its own so that's nice so Rosie back to the acne thing we certainly see parents say you know well now you've got acne you're going to have to start washing your face mm-hmm. you know every 15 minutes or uh-huh. whatever the True. little battles between moms and kids is it possible to wash your f- face too often or when would you move to a to an acne type wash so the battles that come into my office about how frequently do the wash the face become large. Uh, sometimes there are, please tell them this. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to just, you know, establish a relationship with this teenager. <laughs> I can't start off on the wrong foot. Um, but I think in there may be some kids that have pretty mild acne that might respond to just like dove soap twice a day and like it looks so much better. And so maybe there's a role for that in like really early stage mild acne. I think that if that wasn't doing enough and you you tried a a salicylic acid wash, my usual recommendation, because it takes a while, you know, acne is like a roller coaster, hormones are roller coastering up and down. It's really hard to know what something is doing until you try it and use it for a good six to eight weeks. So we tell people, if you're going to start something, you got to commit to it. You got to tell me you're going to use it every day, at least once a day. I'm not going to ask you for twice if you can only do once and commit to using it every day for six weeks. If you are finding that the bumps are flatter and you're not getting as many raised bumps, this is the right product for you. The thing to know about acne washes or treatments is that they prevent new bumps from forming by keeping your pores unclogged 
as well as treat the bumps you have. So keep using it. <laughs> I always put that in big, bold print in my, you know, my little instructions. Don't stop using your, your acne medicine because your acne's not going anywhere anytime soon. It probably will you know, be around for a few years at least until you're over the hormone fluctuations. So I think anything that we suggest for treatment of acne, we ask people to stick to for a good six to eight weeks before they give up on it or say, oh, this is not working, and then kind of graduate up to the next level. And I think another good thing to keep in mind once you've entered that realm of acne prone skin is to check your moisturizers and sunscreens to make sure that they say oil free or won't clog pores because sometimes people are massaging in these products on their face <laughs> every day but man they're pore clogging and they're creating these bumps and so that's a very simple intervention. Do you find there are some products that are out on the market because now we see so many of different companies that are you know saying that this is the way to cure acne and they see the before and after and then you know all of that stuff do you find that any of that is detrimental to curing acne or have you had any patients that come in using treatment that it makes it worse? I mean, the skinceutical market out there is incredibly lucrative. I mean, you could probably find a topical product for pretty much anything, and it could cost $50 and above. I think that there is science behind some of these ingredients in these medicines. But when you get into the products that are a little more complicated, like they're maybe scented and they have maybe a comedy, uh, you know, many combinations of ingredients in them, there there's a potential for irritation or for actually creating a rash from the actual product you're using if it has a lot of fragrance and scent to it. So in that respect, I would say that there's probably a small chance that, you know, some products could make acne appear worse. I think if you have acne and you have sensitive skin, because acne ingredients themselves can be drying and irritating, I think that you could get rash on top of your acne if maybe you're using something scented without meaning to. So people, you know, sometimes come in, they're like, I was, I've been religious, nothing's working, I've tried everything. It can be complicated. That's part of the complexity of some of the office visits that I have for some, somebody who's been trying to treat for a while. I was curious about something. If if there's a history of melanoma in your family, what is a good age to begin your children with annual skin checks? So there are not strict guidelines about skin checks and melanoma in children. If you have three or more family members who've had melanoma in your family, the latest recommendations seem to be to start annual skin checks in late adolescence. Okay. If I have melanoma, then first-degree relatives of myself and my family probably have a slightly higher risk than the general population in melanoma. So a first-degree relative for me would be my parents, my siblings, my children. Outside of that, there are not really set-in-stone guidelines, but I would say that if you're seeing the signal of more than, you know, one or two people in your family with melanoma, then it's, it's good to be cautious. And in terms of skin health and those things that we really worry about later on, I know there's been a lot of action on tanning beds and and skin protection. So I'll let you just go on your rant if you want. Uh, But I also want to know, you know, it's fall. How much should we be lathering up with sunblock? I would say most dermatologists usually recommend that between April and October that you try to, especially if you're fair-skinned, especially if you have a family history maybe of non-melanoma skin cancers um, in your family, to apply sunblock you know, before sun exposure and then remember that the sunblock only lasts about two hours. I think that people sometimes forget that there are very simple things that we can do to protect our skin from the sun, like wearing a shirt 
wearing a hat. But when you're using sunblock to remember that you got to reapply, you know, it's, it's lasting only about two hours. Going back to more of the summer months when um, you're swimming, if you're an outdoor swimmer, a lot of the, the sunscreen ingredients, well, actually all of the sunscreen products out there are required to say on their label, water resistant to either 40 minutes or 80 minutes. There are no other options. Can't say last all day, can't say waterproof, doesn't exist. So 80 minutes is not much longer than an hour. The most common reasons for people to get sunburned are number one, not applying enough sunblock, maybe applying it very lightly or skipping areas or not reapplying early enough. If I'm out in the sun with my daughter, I tend to be a little bit more lax with the sunblock. I think it's very important, but I do want her to make sure she's getting vitamin D and things. So if we're out in the sun for like 10, 15 minutes, sometimes I just, I don't even worry about the sunblock. Is that bad? Or when would you recommend putting sunblock on kids? You know, the duration of time when they're in the sun. And is it important for them to also be getting some sun and not constantly having the sunblock on? I would say if you're out in the early morning hours or the late afternoon, early evening hours, you know, the sun is not going to be intense. Your risk of sunburn is going to be much lower. In the middle of the day, the risk of sunburn is probably, you know, a little bit higher. Uh Also, everyone's skin type is a little different. If you're a person who can be out for five minutes and burn, mm, (laughs) you kind of know the answer. Okay. Um, So that's kind of common sense. But I think the most common reasons that I see people get burned when they come to my office is they were out for long periods of time without reapplication, or maybe they were in, you know, on a tropical vacation somewhere, those mm-hmm. lucky people, and <laughs> didn't realize that when you're close to the equator, you know, the sun's a lot more intense or things like that. Um, so I think, you know, I hopefully, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, thanks. Okay, yeah. Sure. We see a lot of people asking questions about moles and warts and are they the same thing? And what do you, <laughs> when do you want to see them? And what, let, let's start first with warts. What, what can uh, parents do about warts and when should they see a dermatologist? Well, you know, warts are culturally in this country, something that are not always tolerated, <laughs> but warts are very common. The thing about the wart virus, you know, this warts are caused by a virus, a virus that only affects the top layers of the skin. This is a microscopic virus that we probably all come into contact with on a pretty regular basis. So to not get a wart sometime in your life is probably close to impossible. Um, So I think that if you have a wart that's small or is in a place that doesn't bother you or, um, you know, doesn't bother you by its existence (laughs) or by um, bothersome symptoms, you know, what I usually tell families, especially with small kids, like, you know, a few years old, is that you really have the option to not treat um, because warts are not a danger to you. They really um, are just a skin limited problem. Once you get to older kids or being located in invisible areas of the skin, you know, people get a little more bothered. And so there are a couple of options to treat. One is duct tape. There is some scientist science behind that. It's more of an observation that warts seem to get, you know, go away faster with putting duct tape on them and leaving on 24 hours a day. We have no idea how it works, but it's easy. It doesn't require a lot of work. And there are all kinds of fancy patterns of duct tape these days. Kids get really into it. Minion, camo, zebra, rainbow, all these different kinds. So that's a really easy thing to do. And then, of course, you can use um, over-the-counter wart medicines. 
I think that the, a common limitation to treatment of warts is irritation of the wart medicine on normal skin. So we usually recommend using the liquid watery products rather than gels and really applying very, very sparingly only to the wart. It can take months for a wart to go away. And a lot of the over-the-counter products say treat for two weeks and then consult your physician. So that's a common complaint of families when they come to our office. I did what the package told me to do and the wart didn't go away. And sometimes it just requires us being more stubborn than the wart. Um, and, and a lot of times we'll recommend treating longer than the package actually says. So those, the, that's probably the most common treatment that's used for warts. And a lot of pediatricians are aware of that treatment. So I don't, you know, um, it's it's okay to come and see us for warts, but many times your pediatrician can, can help. But just be aware that, you know, it may take weeks or a couple months to get rid of a wart. I had a wart on my thigh. I called it like the mother wart because it was larger than the others. And then around it, there were just very small, little, not as raised warts around it. It sounds really great. I had great thighs. No. <laughs> um, so I had a, I had it burned off. I had it frozen off. The mother still grew back. So finally, I did some research and I had heard to put apple cider vinegar on it. So I was like, you know what? I tried duct tape. I'm like, what? I got nothing to lose here. So I tried the apple cider vinegar. I soaked the end of a Q-tip. I took the cotton off and I placed it on the wart and covered it with a Band-Aid every night. And within a week, that mother wart was burned away. Um, and created a scab. Um, I still continued to treat it the same way for another week just to make sure I killed off any sort of like spores or virus or whatever that was still there. And um, the mother wart never came back. And eventually, I don't even know how long, but all those little baby warts that were around it went away too. I think it was the apple cider vinegar. I'm pretty sure that it was. Um, but that was something that I found from personal experience to work really well. And again, very inexpensive. You find apple cider vinegar wherever you, you know, at any grocery well, store. Well, now there's going to be a shortage. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it worked. It worked very well. And I have not had any, you know, reoccurrence since. So There you have it. And how about moles? When, when should we worry about them? Should they be removed? Mm-hmm. Well, I always tell parents that First of all, we don't come out of our moms with our moles, right? So it's normal for kids to develop new moles up into their late 20s, early 30s. And that the moles that we have, it's pro- it would probably be really hard to find somebody who didn't have at least one mole. I mean, even really fair-skinned people have pink moles. So I try to tell people not to fear their moles. But I think things to pay attention to are a mole that's changing, especially a mole that's changing rapidly. We know that moles that are normally present on our skin can grow gradually with us and they can become slightly darker, slightly raised over time. And these are usually very gradual changes. But if you see a mole that's changing over a period of a few weeks or one part of the mole is changing more than another, then that's definitely a reason to ask someone to look at it. That being said, I, sh- I should point out that melanoma in children is exceedingly rare, really on the order of about one in a million. So I like practicing pediatric dermatology because I don't see much melanoma. But I think that the most important thing is to look for rapid changes or a mole that's becoming painful or bleeding when it's never been traumatized or hurt or a mole that's just recurrently itchy. It's a good reason to come and, and, and have it evaluated. Is there any uh, genetic component? My family, we have um, those cherry I'm sure you can even see here, the cherry ones. My mother has them. Uh-huh. My grandmother had them. Uh-huh. I have them. Uh-huh. Of course, I freak out, you know, and I, go- I Google it constantly. And it says, you know, it's not cancer. Is it just so happenstance that my grandmother, my mother, and myself have it? Like, is my daughter more of a propensity to have it? 
I think probably um, the cherry engine. You know the ones I'm talking about. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there must be some genetic reason why, but they also come after a certain age. So I'm not sure if it's an age-related thing or. A, but probably, if there are multiple people in a family that have them, there probably is something in the DNA. Because you get them we older. I started getting them in my 30s, right. and they started right. appearing. Yeah. So there's so just... much we still don't know about the DNA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are there any foods that you really are pretty honed in on that you feel should be incorporated in the diet? to promote healthy skin growth and whatnot. I, I'm really into health and, and whatnot yeah. and incorporating the right food. So I'm just curious if there's anything you swear by. I don't know of any science behind particular foods in the diet for skin, hair, nails, health. I think it's important to have a balanced diet. I think, you know, obviously fruits and vegetables are probably the most important. You get like things like biotin and, you know, vitamins and stuff from, from those nice, healthy fruits and vegetables. But I don't know. There's not one, one particular food or group of foods that I have any scientific basis for to advise. Well, we can't let this day go without asking you about tanning beds. And you guys don't have teenagers yet, really. But we don't recommend using tanning beds for teenagers, right, Rosie? Never. Never. <laughs> I mean, we have no idea what is being emitted from the lamps in the tanning beds because they are not regulated. You could be getting UVA, UVB, UVC. We don't know. So I think that the risk of using a tanning bed is not worth the benefit. There are so many great options out there in terms of spray tan and things like that. First of all, tan is not cool anymore. Come on. You know, people know, right? It's out there. Um, so it's still a very cultural thing, but I think the risk is not worth it, especially in the long term. And I, there have been some studies that have shown that women in particular who use tanning beds had an increase in non-melanoma skin cancer on their abdomens, which was an area of skin that was exposed in the tanning salon more than in the outdoors. So I don't think there's any question that use of tanning beds increases your risk of skin cancer. But also, do you want to have wrinkly, leathery skin when you're a young person? First of all, don't you want to look like an awesome, older, rockin' adult with no wrinkles? I mean, really. So I tell all my patients that <laughs> you want to look this good when you're 60, okay? So don't, you know, don't abuse your skin, protect it from the sun, because that's probably the most desirable benefit of protecting your skin from the sun is staying young looking forever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you do all have rockin' skin. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Rosie. We learned so much. There's so many questions that have to do with the skin, and, and you're so calming and interesting and informative. And so we really appreciate you joining us today. It was my pleasure. Paul? Yeah, a great, great episode. We ran out of time because, you know, we see a lot of patients with more tattoos and, you know, more things kids are doing to their skin. So with another show, maybe we'll, we'll head on that as well. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question about this topic, or if there's another topic you'd like us to explore in a future pediatric chat, you can send it to us by using the question portal on our webpage. And be sure to view our library for more pediatric chat programs. I'm Dr. Jay Greenspan, and thanks for listening.